and welcome to Rising. We are back with a very special show for you today. You might notice our new look. We are super excited about it. The team worked really hard on it, and I think it looks great. So welcome to the relaunched Rising. I'm so excited this morning to be joined here in studio by Brianna Joy Gray and Bacha Ungar Sargan. Ladies, what a momentous occasion this is. Indeed, It's indeed. great. What a treat to have all three of us in studio with this new look. I'm very excited about that and the content of today's show. Yes. It's very exciting. Let's get right into it. In fact, uh, Brie, why don't you take it away? Well, Robbie, former President Trump says he expects to be arrested this upcoming Tuesday in relation to the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation into the alleged hush money he paid adult film star, star Stormy Daniels. In a message posted to Truth Social on Friday, the former president said, quote, illegal leaks from a corrupt and highly political Manhattan District Attorney's office, which has allowed new records to be set in violent crime and whose leader is funded by George Soros, indicate that with no crime being able to be proven and Based on an old and fully debunked by numerous other prosecutors fairy tale, the far and away leading Republican candidate and former president of the United States of America will be arrested on Tuesday of next week. Protest, take our nation back. Now, this comes after NBC News reported law enforcement agencies are conducting, quote, preliminary security assessments, including plans in and around the Manhattan Criminal Court in preparation for a possible indictment this week. According to a spokesperson for the Trump campaign, the former president's team has not been in communication with New York DA Alvin Bragg's office. Quote, no one tells us anything, which is very frustrating. President Trump is basing mm. his response on press reports. Mm. Very interesting. So this might not come to pass on Tuesday, right. I think, is the immediate takeaway, is that we actually don't have any idea. Um, however, it, it very well could be that this uh, DA is moving toward, that there will be an indictment um, on this kind of hush payments for Stormy Daniels that were facilitated by Michael Cohen. Um, you know, look, regardless of what you think about Trump or his underlying involvement in a complex web of potential criminality related to so many issues, I think there has to be some acknowledgement that this is one of the very weakest things to go after him on. Um, you, you know, you'd have to, I mean, it's not, frankly, a very serious charge anyway. It has to do with exactly how the money was made, made available to pay off Stormy Daniels. Did Trump know about that arrangement? You know, does he, is he guilty of, of the mens rea, of actually being involved in that and knowing it was illegal? Maybe, maybe so, but this, this is it. To to take the the strong step of indicting a former president based on this aspect of it is something that I think is going to come in for a lot of criticism. Yeah, Donald Trump's point that the attorney general ran on pro prosecuting him, it does raise the specter of whether or not this is politically motivated. That combined with the relative weakness of this potential charge again, we don't actually know what the indictment is going to be. Um, it, it does start to lead people to believe that this is, even if there is some underlying there, there politically motivated, especially because many people are pointing out that if, when it comes to these kind of um, election law violations, Hillary Clinton, of course, was fined um, by the Federal Election Committee for payments uh, investigating the Steele dossier. So this is one of those issues where it's, were we talking about lock her up when we're talking mm -hmm. about Hillary Clinton? It, are the punishments that are being um, attached to Donald Trump going to be more significant because of the political implications of him actually running for president right. again? And what does it mean for us to live in a country where if, if it is the case that a relatively flimsy criminal charge is leveraged in what appears to be an effort to undermine a legitimate democratic process? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is it's it would be a shockingly, shockingly bad move. You know, Democrats love to complain about how, you know, um, institutions are getting politicized, polarization is growing. You know, they love to talk about how now you can't expect anything from the Supreme Court because Donald Trump had so many appointees. This is what an actually politicized judiciary and judicial process and criminal justice system would look like. I'm sorry, I'm not saying that anybody is above the law. Obviously, nobody is above the law. But when somebody has been elected president, they don't just represent themselves. They represent the choice of the body politics. If you want to be the side that cares about democracy, that has to mean something, you have to have a very high bar for prosecuting someone. And here what you have is an attempt to cobble together, like you both said, an extremely weak case based on the testimony of Michael Cohen, yeah. the, you know, like what, what, he's second only to Avenatti in terms of credibility mm. when it comes to these issues. Mm. I mean, and you, to see this man being interviewed now on CNN like some sort of, you know, hero because he's going after Donald Trump, and we talk about this all the time, brain worms. Mm. You know, you can get, they, what was that we were talking about last week? You know, you, you know, say what you will about Jeffrey Epstein, right? <laughs> At least he knew the truth about Trump, right? Like you can be a pedophile yeah. as long as, you know, you, 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 you criticize yeah. Donald Trump. It is so unbelievable distressing and dangerous to democracy, yes. Yeah. Well, these developments come just after YouTube announced that Trump's account has been reinstated on the platform after it was banned back in 2021. The former president's Facebook account also reinstated last week. So far, he's kept to posting to Truth Social, I think possibly because he has some deal with Truth Social that they get his content exclusively, something like that. Um, and, and also, subsequently, in a Truth Social post, he, he said he called for widespread protesting uh, based on you know, if he's indicted, if he's brought in, there should be protests everywhere. Um, I have to wonder how many of his you know, hardcore supporters who are still out there um, are going to get out of bed to do a protest on Trump's behalf, remembering how it went down last time. I mean, there, there, I think there are some feelings of betrayal that Trump didn't pardon any of those people. He didn't, mm. he didn't provide any funds to get them out of jail. He did nothing for the, Jan the January 6th defendants. I did see some people on social media, some ardent MAGA people saying, yeah, I'm going to take a pass on this one because Trump wasn't there for his supporters when they were there for him. I think the question of what he represents to his supporters is a really important one. And when they come after him from the highest levels of Democratic mm -hmm. institutions, institutions, that contributes to the view of him as a tribute for the people who also feel like they are the objects of derision and hatred and contempt of people at the highest level of democratic and liberal-leaning institutions. So when he goes to CPAC and says, I am your retribution, right, you know, we can kind of chuckle but at that. But to say it like but... he says, I am your retribution. <laughs> Yeah, I, I it's meaningful. I think that's a really important point. Because um, on one hand, you could argue the underlying case here, the nature of the Stormy Daniels accusations, is maybe something that certain Trump supporters might want to keep a little distance from. It's a little different than saying, well, I think the Democrats stole the election or democracy is at stake. Uh, Donald Trump gave hush money to uh, you know an, an adult performer. Maybe I'll, I'll stay home from this one. On the other hand, the weaponization of the, um, of, of, the, of the police state, of the government, is a big issue, a big motivating issue for Republicans. It was uh, the motivating issue around the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. Mm -hmm. And the question is, which one of those 
prevails. Moreover, are people a little wary of 1-6 in the kind of implication in the background that calling for people to come and protest and get into the streets has a little bit of the valence of what toppled over into illegal activity for so many people at the mm -hmm. Capitol? And are people also going to want to keep their distance from him on that one? I think you're right to bring up the Mar-a-Lago raid because that and that similarly was something that I, a, a lot of people in the mainstream media went Oh, oh, oh my God! You know, he, he. This is it. This is it for Trump. Can you believe they did? He took these documents. Mm. Then it turns out that this was a very kind of stupid procedural crime that has been committed by like every person who has ever held office. Yeah. And look, there are meaningful differences. They he asked for the docs sure, a lot. But he didn't cooperate. Biden did cooperate. I mean, there there are differences that I think are important not to uh, pave over that caused the FBI to raid Mar-a-Lago when they didn't raid. Uh, Biden's garage or whatever it was and, and these other places that people have had uh, uh, documents they should not have had. However, I think your underlying point is correct that oftentimes when Democrats pick at something like this, they expose a whole wealth of hypocrisy that gives legitimacy to some of the stuff that Donald Trump is doing. And this is one of the situations where I got to say it feels like don't come for the, if you come for the king, you best not miss, <laughs> right? Because you have the potential to galvanize a right. whole host of people who feel really like they are being persecuted, that Trump is their vengeance. Well, and a lot of uh, Republican uh, political uh, officials, even some who are now in, supposedly are being labeled as like non-Trump people, like Mike Pence, said that this was an abuse of power. This is a terrible thing to do. Kevin McCarthy said that. Um, how do you think it affects uh, the, the potential matchup between Trump and DeSantis? Do you think it's true that this does uh, help Trump's potential reelection bid in the primary setting, even if I, I think there's probably very little argument it's helping him in a general, but. I mean, I feel like we're going to get like a Mar-a-Lago bump, right? He got mm -hmm. a nice little bump after the Mar-a-Lago. But I think, you know, speaking of the matchup, so CNN had a, a recent poll with some really interesting findings. They found that Trump was up an average of 55 percent to 26 percent over DeSantis among Republican voters of color. Mm -hmm. And when it came to Republican voters who make less than $50,000 a year, he was up 22 points over DeSantis, right? Um, so, so that's the Trump base. Increasingly, people who are people of color who have moved to the Republican Party, they did so for Trump. Poor yeah. Republicans well, it's, voted it's, for Trump. Because we're mean, that's, a, that's a small, it's a relatively small yes, sliver two, of the 200 base. 200 Republican but, voters but, were, were in the poll, yes. No, 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 no I mean in terms of how many uh, voters of color are actually represented in folks that support Donald Trump at all. I'm saying it's still relatively small. But I think it is, I think that is reflective of the fact that DeSantis is attracting more establishment, traditional Trump yes. voters, and exactly Trump right. is yeah. attracting populist voters. So black people who are disaffected with the Democratic Party for really, I think, frankly, relatable reasons aren't going to be attracted to someone like Donald DeSantis that seemed like the same Conservative media had already uh, anointed DeSantis the next Republican presidential candidate, and it ain't over yet. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we'll find sure. out. Well, I'll tell you what's on my radar coming up next. Stay with us. Project is a coalition of misinformation researchers organized by Stanford University. Now, during the course of the pandemic, people associated with the Virality Project appointed themselves head COVID censors and set out to constrain the boundaries of acceptable speech on social media. The Virality Project's goals, above and beyond all else, were to protect the perceived integrity of the federal health bureaucracy, of vaccine manufacturers and government vaccine policymakers and to advance mainstream establishment narratives and interests in general. This meant, of course, that the Virality Project frequently pushed Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms to restrict speech related to COVID-19, 
even if the underlying claims were true. Indeed, true information about vaccines that in the Virality Project's opinion had the possibility of causing vaccine skepticism should be suppressed as misinformation under Stanford's thinking. Now, we are learning about this due to some new reporting from independent journalist Matt Taibbi as part of the Twitter files, which are ongoing disclosures authorized by new Twitter CEO Elon Musk concerning the content moderation policies at that company under its previous leadership. What we're seeing time and time again is that Twitter faced tremendous pressure to censor speech relating to elections, Hunter Biden, COVID, other topics. And this overwhelming pressure was coming from the federal government itself, from the FBI, from the Department of Homeland Security, from the State Department, from the CDC, and from the White House itself. The, but the, the pressure was also coming from an entire industry of think tanks, NGOs, fact-checking organizations, and academics whose work was in many cases supported by the federal government. They spent your tax dollars building infrastructure and information surveillance with the ultimate goal of silencing you. Now let's look at some examples. A June 2021 report by the Virality Project warned Twitter that the release of Dr. Fauci's emails was being used to, quote, exacerbate distrust of Dr. Fauci and U.S. public health officials. That same report lamented that the emails were being, quote, interpreted to suggest that the coronavirus may have leaked from a lab. The Virality Project also flagged reports of people contracting COVID after getting vaccinated, true vaccine side effects, and, quote, worrisome jokes. The hall monitors at the Virality Project described all of these instances as disinformation events or potential violations that project that the project explicitly targeted, quote, true content which might promote vaccine hesitancy. This coalition, which was working with government agencies, NGOs, the social media companies themselves, well, they took the position that even true information could count as dangerous misinformation if its effect was to encourage a policy that clashed with the expert consensus. In one email to Twitter, the Virality Project warned that conversations that included fears of vaccine passports should be suppressed because being anti-vaccine passport was a gateway to being anti-vaccine. That was considered a misinformation event. This is insidiously wrong, of course. Vaccine passports were a real policy implemented in the U.S. during the pandemic. People who were worried about them were right to express that concern. Even today, three years after the pandemic, at a time where COVID-19 thankfully stopped having considerable impact on our daily lives, the U.S. still has a vaccine passport system to enter the country, unlike much of the rest of the Western world. Tennis player Novak Djokovic, for example, was recently prevented from entering the country and attending the Miami Open because of his unvaxxed status. That's not misinformation. That's true. But over and over again, we see that the goal of efforts like the Virality Project isn't to simply correct supposed factual errors, but to tell you what you're supposed to think, what you're allowed to say. Now, my own reporting, the Facebook files, showed that the CDC took the exact same approach as the Virality Project, frequently warning Meta, the parent company of Facebook, that any criticism of vaccine policy could theoretically promote vaccine hesitancy. And the result was widespread suppression of free speech. Now, if we still value the First Amendment, we must resist these pernicious calls for censorship, a call that is coming from a sordid coalition of truth czars and ideological activists masquerading as fact-checkers. 
So another Twitter files disclosure, another uh, example coming to light of the efforts that all of these people went to convince social media to censor free speech. And I, I keep returning to this well because it's a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a one with a lot of content in it. Yeah, I think this is a huge gap that I think a lot of liberals who have been ignoring the content of the Twitter files and thinking that they can't ignore it because they believe that misinformation is a real problem that needs to be suppressed even if it goes against certain kinds of speech concerns are really missing. That what we're talking about in so many instances is the suppression or attempted suppression of true information, information that the people who are seeking it to be suppressed admit is actually true. But there's this disconnect in part because these various institutions, the CDC, people like this organization you're describing here, seem to believe that they are incapable of explaining to the public why they might not want to act on certain kinds of true facts or engaging with them directly about the ways they might be persuaded to go ahead and take advantage of certain health benefits of things like vaccines or masking or whatever without outright lying to them about the mixed opinions about what the pros and cons are. You have to completely keep information from normal people in the view of these institutions rather than trust them on their own. And I think there's a real issue there with that, that confidence gap between institutions and the population that they're trying to skirt instead of dealing with head on. What do you make of it, Batia? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the question I keep coming back to here is why is this not catching on more generally with the more mainstream public? I mean, it's very rare that I'll talk to somebody who's not sort of very active on Twitter um, who feels the level of outrage about this that we do. And I wonder if that's because Twitter itself is a sort of platform that's mostly used by elites to police other elites. And so to us, this is sort of very infuriating. And we can see how this led to actual, you know, real world consequences. But I think you know, I, I, I'm curious what both of you think about that. Why is this not this story not catching on more broadly? It, well, I think a part of the reason is obviously this work is being done by independent journalists, mm -hmm. Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, Barry Weiss. Um, you know, the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC haven't had access, the same level of access to these files. They haven't had any access. They have to rely on it. Third party. So look, I can understand uh, in some level of them saying, look, we, we, we would like to investigate this, but we're not being given access. But I think I should think they would be covering the, at least the discussion that's being had, right? They're not even saying, well, here's other people weighing in and, you know, you can decide what you think for it uh, on your own. It's also interesting to me in some of, the, in some of these disclosures that came through, the, the flagging of misinformation that's just kind of attacks on Dr. Fauci's like reputation, like mm -hmm. is, is keeping his, him and people like him, uh, ma making sure they, they remain respected by the public, is that really the same thing as spreading like misinformation and untruths. Um, it shows you how, I, I, to the extent the media is ignoring this and this kind of this kind of narrative that protecting the prevailing health authorities reputations or their right to make policy is the same thing as like stopping people from saying crazy things about vaccines. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me, Robin, we've talked about this a couple of times now, uh, how at one point when I was working for the Bernie campaign, I was uh, uh, criticized or, or warned not to um, kind of uh, promote certain so-called Russian narratives, those not Russian narratives being that uh, America has a history of not being especially favorable to black Americans <laughs> under the law. Um, and they were saying, this is, this is a narrative that Russian bots were, were pushing and that this was going to have negative out, out, outcomes in the election. And my pushback was to say, if the underlying fact is true, mm -hmm. even if 
some Russian disinformation campaign is capitalizing on those negative facts, you should deal with the underlying facts. And I think that the same is true in the situation. I think that part of why this issue is getting ignored, in addition to the reasons that you pointed out, Robbie, is that it reflects negatively on many of the mainstream media institutions mm -hmm. that benefit from these narratives and that have been per perpetuating them themselves. And as a consequence, a lot of the public, a lot of the general public, really does believe that some of the stuff that is being labeled as misinformation is actually untrue material. And I I still, to this day, have conversations with folks about kind of normal, known things now about how other countries got, don't have vaccine passports, and we do, the kind of um, nonsensicalness of some of the policies that require people to be fired, or you you, you don't, you know, you have to, um, uh, sorry, the, we've covered the story of all the people in New York who had gotten back pay as a consequence mm -hmm. of being fired, mm -hmm. uh, people who don't, who for years refuse to kind of internalize any of the information about how you can still transmit COVID, even if you got back. Vaccinated. You know, that, that stuff took a long time to trickle out, in part because there was a resistance to covering that true information in these mainstream news uh, outlets. And it's not clear to me that they're really prepared to engage with the role they've been playing in this the whole time. Indeed. But we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. An international team of virus experts have said on Thursday that they actually found genetic data from a market in Wuhan, China, that they believe links the coronavirus with animals, raccoon dogs, that had been for sale there. The New York Times reported on that, adding evidence to the theory that COVID-19, their theory, originated from human-animal contact in a wet market. The genetic data was drawn from swabs taken in and around the Huanan seafood wholesale market starting in January of 2020. This was shortly after the Chinese authorities shut down the market due to suspicions that it was linked to the outbreak of the coronavirus. Joining us now to discuss is former CDC director Robert Redfield. Welcome, doctor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So first and foremost, uh, does this new information about uh, the, the swabs that have been taken that show evidence uh, that these raccoon dogs had COVID, uh, the COVID virus, change your estimation of what the origin of the pandemic was? No, I don't think it really adds anything. I think it's important first, they didn't show that the raccoon dogs were actually infected. What they showed was they could have DNA from raccoon dogs on swabs that they also had the COVID virus on. So it's also not unusual for animals, you know, to be infected as opposed to being the intermediate reservoir. For example, you may or may not know in the United States, a substantial number of the white-tailed deer are infected with COVID. Uh, dogs can be infected with COVID. Cats can be infected with COVID. Uh, minks can be infected with COVID. So all they did was show that in the same swab, they had nucleic acid from a, from a raccoon dog and nucleic acid from, uh, from COVID. So you know, the dogs could have been infected. They could not have been infected. They could have just been in the same space where the virus was. The other problem I have with all of this, and I wish these authors, you know, rather than publish in the Atlantic, uh, monthly, they put their data out into a scientific peer-reviewed journal where it could be critically reviewed. Um, I do want to remind people that we have really strong evidence that this pandemic did not start in December, January. It actually started probably somewhere between August and September, uh, August, September, October. So I'm still waiting for the authors, and because they're they're good scientists, they're, they're men of integrity. 
women of integrity, but the reality is they really should retract their proximal origin paper where they say that was the origin of the COVID because they're basically three to four months out of date from when the pandemic really started. You know, Dr. Redfield, you were one of a, a, a prominent government health advisors uh, who came out and, and said, you know, what you thought about the possible lab origin, uh, lab leak origins of COVID, um, a view that was really highly stigmatized, I think, for a long period of time, particularly in the media where, where pol uh, political figures and other health uh, officials who really just raised the possibility of it, um, you know, were, were kind of, were, were, were likened to a, it was a conspiracy theory, that sort of thing. Now that the, the Energy Department has made its conclusion, the FBI as well, that they're expressing you know, low confidence, admittedly, but that it, it, a lab origin being more likely, uh, I'm seeing people discussing it again in the media. What do you make of this period of time where you were really not even allowed to, to express that view in polite society? Well, I think the whole approach, uh, particularly by the leadership of NIH, I've said this before, was antithetical to science. Uh, you know, I stand by my testimony that I did recently, uh, and I know Dr. Fauci, Tony, has some disagreement, but he's incorrect. Uh, and I did speak with him in January and Jeremy Farrar about how important I thought it was that NIH lead a scientific investigation into the two hypotheses, spillover and lab leak, and do it aggressively. Uh, so that we can use science to try to understand what what uh, the origins of this virus was. And instead, rather than lead an open, transparent um, scientific debate where both sides were represented, very rapidly within the first week of February, they went to basically totally support the spillover hypothesis. And you've seen that even with the paper, The Proximal Origin, you, even with the consensus uh, on their phone call, even with a letter in Lancet that referred to people like me as conspirators because I had a different point of view. I will say I expressed my point of view on the White House task force in, in, in January, uh, February of, of 2020. So uh, people knew that I was of the view as the head of CDC that it was a reasonable hypothesis that this came from a laboratory and both, both hypothesis should be pursued. It was very quick, though, that uh, the NIH uh, took a very aggressive stance, as did many of the scientists, that the only acceptable hypothesis was spillover. And unfortunately, the media went in. I mean, the article that you started out, it's not even a scientific article. It's a comment in, 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 in Atlantic Monthly in the New York Times, and yet it becomes major news, hmm. as if there's a, a strong bias, in my view, towards trying to promote uh, a spillover hypothesis rather than having what I consider an honest scientific debate where I've always said, if people prove that I'm wrong, I thank them because then I learned something. If you prove to me that I'm right, I'm not as thankful because you didn't teach me anything. <laughs> this, should, this should be a scientific debate and it hasn't been. It's been a geopolitical decision for a single narrative 
which is unfortunate and, well, as I said, is antithetical to science. And, Dr. Redfield, do you think that's because, I think what we're all wondering is, do, do figures like Dr. Fauci, who have been you know, very chief advocates of a certain kind of scientific research that many people are reasonably worried could have contributed to a lab leak-type incident with the, the grant funding by the U.S. government that was done and that, that research was conducted in Wuhan, China, is is there a fear that some of the government health scientists and and their and their and their surrogates um, are, have a, have incentive to tamp down lab leak speculation because that impugns their funding priorities and their their view of what kind of science should be done? Yeah, first I want to be very clear because uh, Tony Fauci and I have been colleagues and friends for over forty years. I do believe that Fauci and Collins. Are, uh, are working in what they believe is in the best interest of science. Mm -hmm. I happen to totally disagree with them. Uh, they are strong advocates of gain-of-function research. I'm a strong advocate for a moratorium on gain-of-function research because I do believe it's m very probable that this pandemic was a direct consequence of science. I do think you're right that there's a strong interest in protecting their view, protecting science, that is protecting gain-of-function research and thereby trying to shift the debate. This obviously didn't come from the laboratory. This obviously came from nature. Um, and that's really the push. You know, secondarily, you know, you know, and I don't blame the Chinese lab per se, you know. The reality is the U.S. government funded this work. NIH funded it, USAID funded it, the State Department funded it, and the DOD funded it. So. The United States funded the research, and the scientific community, largely in America and Europe, fostered the gain-of-function research, which was the basis for which this virus came. Tony's right that prior to gain-of-function research, the only way new pathogens came in to the human species was spillover. But now, in the presence of gain-of-function research, where you can take a pathogen into a laboratory and change it, then no longer does the species barrier really define uh, the event in humans. It can actually come. And I do believe the next pandemic, and we're going to have another pandemic, and I think it's going to be the great pandemic. I consider COVID a minor pandemic. The great pandemic is going to come, and normally it would come from spillover. It's going to be bird flu that learns how to transmit to humans and then go human to human. But I think the species barriers are very real. Um, but it's much more probable that it will happen because of gain-of-function research in a laboratory and then escape, and then we're going to have a pandemic with flu, which will be much more brutal uh, to the world than COVID was. Um, doctor, I, I so appreciate you saying that you appreciate being told, you know, that when you're wrong, because then you learn something. I'm wondering if, um, you know, you could share anything that um, you think you were wrong about at the beginning of the pandemic, now that you're being quite vindicated on some of the larger questions. Well, I, I was wrong on several things. Um, uh, I didn't make this decision, the broader scientific community, Fauci and others did, to call this, you know, SARS-like. This virus is not SARS-like. SARS basically came from a bat to an intermediate host to humans, but it never learned how to go efficiently human to human. MERS never learned to go efficiently to human to human. This virus immediately mm. was one of the most infectious viruses. So what's the first mistake we made? And I was part of it. Um, my colleague, my counterpart, George Gao, who was the head of CDC in China, basically guaranteed me that this virus didn't go human to human. Hmm. All right, even though I was skeptical when I saw his first uh, 
27 cases because three of them were in clusters, we did come to the conclusion that this virus was also SARS-like in that it only caused disease symptomatically. So I think the first big mistake I made was I was looking for symptomatic infections. And so as a consequence, we told the public health community, look for sick people that had exposure to China and let's test them for the virus. Debbie Burks and I, by the middle uh, end of February said, we got that wrong. This virus largely is asymptomatic. And so that changes the entire public health response because now you can't look for sick people. You've got to figure out another way to diagnose the silent epidemic. And that was expanded testing. So I'd say the first mistake that I made and many uh, came along with me was uh, assuming that this virus caused symptomatic infection. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it didn't. And it really formed the basis of our original public health response. You remember when people coming back at airports, we would screen everybody at the airport and we'd ask them if they were sick. Mm -hmm. And if they were sick, we'd, we'd take them aside and evaluate them. And if they weren't sick, we'd let them right go through. Well, we now know that probably three quarters of the people who get COVID don't get sick if they're younger than say the age of 50. Big mistake. There were also problems with early testing, uh, you know, that the CDC was involved with. You've said we're going to have another pandemic. Uh, God forbid, worse than COVID. That sounds horrible. Do you think, given the early testing errors that happened with COVID, would the CDC be, be better able to gear up in the event of another pandemic so that we, we don't have the, the failures with the tests and things of that nature? Yeah, thanks for bringing it up, because this is another area where the media never got it quite right, okay? Uh, CDC's job was to develop new tests for the public health community of our nation, for the public health labs. And I actually think we should have gotten an award because we developed a test within 10 days of knowing the sequence of this virus. Uh, and that's how we were able to diagnose the first cases, I think on January 21st. Um, uh, that test was never flawed. That test never failed. That test was never not available to any health department in the United States. The only problem is you had to send the blood to CDC. Now, people at CDC decided after the health departments were kind of complaining that they were tired of sending all the blood to CDC, that wouldn't it be nice if we gave them the reagents so they could do their own test. And CDC uh, made the decision then to manufacture the reagents. Uh, uh, the second thing they decided, since they were sending the test away from the mothership, they wanted to be very sure that they wouldn't get false positives. So this test was based on what we call two primer pairs. They decided to add a third primer pair. Well, that third primer pair wasn't vetted to the degree it should have been. And so when they sent the test out that Thursday uh, and to validate, it was never used by the health departments because they had to prove that it worked. I, my phone started ringing the next day that the test wasn't validating. They were getting low level false positives. And what we learned was that the third uh, primer pair was um, the FDA would argue was contaminated. I argued it may have been a design flaw. We know now it was a design flaw. I can't rule out that it wasn't also contaminated. We then removed the third primer pair and went back to the original test and it's worked ever since and continues to this day. The real problem with testing, and this is really important for the next pandemic, and why does South Korea do so well and we do so poorly? South Korea developed private-public partnerships with the diagnostic companies when they had their MERS outbreak, mm. all right? And so they were in place. 
we have a CDC that makes lab tests for the hundred or so public health labs, but we don't have a CDC to make lab tests for every hospital in the country or for clinical medicine. That's the job of the private sector. And so what happened was there was no private sector and BARDA never got engaged to bring the private sector in. The private sector didn't get engaged because when MERS, when SARS came, they built a test and then SARS went away. And when MERS came, they built a test and MERS went away. So everyone's saying this is SARS-like, the private sector stayed on the sideline. The other major flaw, which was, I got uh, Steve Hahn to change, the FDA had decided that they didn't want any laboratory developed test. They want to regulate laboratory developed tests. I ran laboratories my career and I developed a lot of laboratory tests that I used to help die treat my patients. So we assumed that the molecular labs at Harvard and Mass General, you know, in, in Seattle, San Francisco, they would all chime in because we published our primer pairs. We published the method, we didn't patent it. We figured all the big you know, diagnostic labs in the hospitals would go ahead and start providing testing for people. But that didn't happen because the FDA made it very clear that they were going to come down hard on anybody that used a lab developed test. So that was another flaw. Dr. Redfield, uh, I, I want to get you before we run out of time with you to just to respond to a recent appearance by uh, Dr. Fauci on News Nation's Cuomo, uh, with, with News Nation's Cuomo. He responded to your testimony concerning the very early days of the pandemic. Let's take a quick look. Well, you know, it's really sad, Chris, that he's wrong on every single account. But you don't need to take my word for it. You take the word for the people. He's saying that the phone call to discuss the possibility that this might have been engineered, that I was in charge of the phone call and I deliberately excluded him because his, his ideas differed from what he interpreted were mine. Well, first of all, he had no idea what my ideas were because I kept a completely open mind. Secondly, I was not responsible. I didn't include or exclude anybody from the call because the people that were responsible for setting up the call were Jeremy Farrar from the Wellcome Trust in the UK, Eddie Holmes from, uh, from Australia, and a, and a bunch of other very competent evolutionary virologist. So for, for him to say, and it's sad that he's so wrong and, and he's publicly saying that, that I excluded him. Now, the other thing that's important, he's saying that I excluded him because his idea was different from my idea and his idea was that it came from a lab. Well, half the people on the call felt it might be from a lab. So, Dr. Redfield, what do you make of that response from Dr. Fauci? Well, first, I, st I stand by my testimony. I talked to Tony in January, as I said before, and Jeremy Farrar independently about the importance for us to have a scientific investigation into the two hypotheses and to have it rigorous, transparent investigation into the, to the two hypotheses. And I made it clear, you know, that I, as a virologist, Tony's an immunologist, as a virologist, I favored the lab leak for a variety of different reasons. And um, uh, I didn't say that Tony deliberately excluded me. I said I was not included in the call. Now I can guarantee you 
Fauci was very involved in who was on that call, and Jeremy Farrar was working very closely with him, as they did for the Lancet letter, as they did for the paper, The Proximal Origin of AIDS. So there's no question. And the other thing I'll just say, within three or four days, if he had so many people that believed what I believed as a hypothesis, that were so in, engaged in that hypothesis, within three or four days, they all changed and they did a consensus report that the this uh, the laboratory leak was not not in the cards. It couldn't have happened. It had to be a spillover event. So I disagree with Tony. I'm sad he didn't provide the scientific leadership that he should have provided as the head of NIID to have this transparent investigation of both hypotheses. He should have put together teams to go after both hypotheses. And it should have been open, transparent, rigorous scientific debate. It didn't happen. Instead, there was a very concerted effort uh, to come to a single narrative. Now, I'm not going to tell you who on the call told me that, you know, that how they went to a single narrative. And I'm not going to say who said that, you know, one of the reasons certain people weren't included like me is they were convinced that I wouldn't agree to a single narrative. But the fact is they came out with a single narrative in three days. So you're, and, you're saying that the reason, because it seemed like what Dr. Fauci was saying was that you don't know his mens rea, you don't know what he really believed or what how he was leaning, but you're saying that you had a conversation with somebody else who was a participant on the call uh, who told you that the reason that you were in fact excluded, excluded and the reason was because you were inclined to believe. Uh, I, another member, another member said they wanted a single consensus and I wasn't there. But I know what Tony felt because we argued it out in the um, White House task force. And you can read Pre Vice President Pence's book. He even says Fauci guaranteed him that it didn't come from a lab, it came from Spiro, but Redfield felt it came from Spiro um, from a lab. It was all discussed within the White House task force. It just wasn't discussed publicly. So can you give us and, a sense uh, of, of what, what was Fauci saying to you? How was he pushing back against you as you were he advocating He said it was a spillover. For... He says absolutely spillover. Go back and watch all his, you know, one thing Tony has that I don't have in those days. He has a lot of media time. And just <laughs> yeah. go back and, and go back and play what he said. Okay, but go back and play what he said. I think he said interested. this was spillover. I think people are interested, Dr. Redfield, and and because you you obviously are very knowledgeable about this, and there, people are interested in in kind of what his off-camera response might have meant to someone like yourself, who was confronting him with direct factual uh, direct factual basis for why you think the lab read, leak read, origin yeah, read, was more read, reliable. Read Vice, yeah, read Vice President Pence's book. He says it very clearly. Clearly, that I said that it, it came from the lab. Tony guaranteed him that it was a spillover event. Dr. Redfield, I think a lot of people might say, well, okay, we don't know exactly for sure which of these two hypotheses it is. Uh, policy, maybe policy changes should happen to guard against to, uh, both of them. You know, if we, if there were, we, we, there's only maybe so much we can do about wet mar open wet markets in, in China, but if, if we had them in the U.S., we would close them. Uh, we would also maybe renew the moratorium on gain-of-function research, which expired in 2018. My understanding is some exceptions were granted anyway under that moratorium. Um, Dr. Fauci was was deposed on this issue and, and, and gave some inclination that he might have personally signed off on some exceptions. But now that moratorium no longer exists. Do you think we should re-implement a moratorium on this research like today? Yeah, I mean, the reason that I've taken the position that I've taken, you know, I, I just prefer to stay out of the public eye and been there, done that. But I took this position because I feel very strongly that we need to have a moratorium on gain-of-function research. I told you that the great pandemic is coming. I think it's going to come not from spillover. 
it's going to become from gain-of-function research or intentional bioterrorism, right? It's going to be a bird flu virus that is manipulated to be able to transmit human to human, very similar to what we saw with the COVID. You know, in 2014, that laboratory published that they finally learned how to take their COVID virus and have it bind to the H2 receptor in humanized mice, and therefore it could go human to human. I mean, they did the experiments. They published them in 2014. And in now we see that there's a COVID virus, which is, I think, has a n number of signature sequences in it that aren't normal. The fear and cleavage site, the fact that they use the nucleotide triplet for arginine that humans use, not bats use. The fact that COVID right now can barely infect bats, but it can infect humans. I should tell you that there's a lot of evidence that this virus was manipulated to be able to be highly transmissible among humans. I think it was done probably as part of a biodefense program that largely was trying to make a vaccine vector that would be used for good purposes. But unfortunately, that virus escaped and it was highly transmissible for humans. And you saw from the time it escaped, which was probably somewhere in the September timeframe. You remember in September, that laboratory did three things. They changed the um, management from the, military, uh, the civilian to military, they deleted all the sequences of the viruses and they put a contract in for a new ventilation system. That's about the same time uh, they began to see some illness in the area. So I think that's when the epidemic started. And um, I do think the gain of function research moratorium is something should happen. It shouldn't be decided just by scientists. I happen to be a scientist. But we shouldn't decide this ourselves. There should be a broader debate of society whether this research needs to be done or not. Tony will argue it needs to be done. Collins will argue it needs to be done. Um, I think that debate should happen. And if the answer for society is we need to do the research because the potential good is greater than any harm, then we should figure out how do we do it in a safe, responsible, and effective way. But right now, this research is being done in university laboratories all over the world. And again, I'll go on record, you know, don't like to say it. My parents were scientists. It, it hurts me to say this. But I do believe that the most likely answer when we get to the truth is that this pandemic was caused by science, not by a natural spillover event. Mm. Oh. Dr. Redfield, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. All right, thanks for having me. God bless, bye-bye. More Rising right after this. Hunter Biden has sued the computer repair shop owner who worked on his infamous laptop for invasion of privacy, accusing the man of wrongfully sharing his personal data for political purposes, according to new federal court filings. This is a countersuit to the lawsuit brought on by the owner, John Paul MacIsaac, who is suing Hunter Biden, CNN, and President Biden's 2016 presidential campaign. MacIsaac claimed he obtained data from the laptop in question because Hunter Biden left it unclaimed for 90 days after service was complete. Now, Hunter Biden still has not confirmed the laptop in question is even his, but the these latest filings do acknowledge that some of the data publicly released belongs to him. Right, which led to this really kind of hilarious yeah. media cycle where all these outlets that had previously called right. into question the legitimacy of the laptop had, had, you know, stopped just short of saying this was Russian-based disinformation are now saying, oh, Hunter Biden, you know, suing over his missing laptop. I'm like, what laptop? Uh, you said this was non-existent. You called into question whether this was a real thing. So what do you 
think about this underlying uh, claim here? It's a countersuit, which seems it's often just a legal strategy, mm-hmm. you know, to, to respond to this lawsuit. Some people are obviously going to say you left the laptop there. The terms of service say that you relinquish your your rights to what's on the laptop if you leave it there. Mm-hmm. But the, the counter argument is reputable businesses don't sell, leak, share personal data uh, for laptops left behind, even if they technically have the right to, and that there are some important privacy issues at stake here. Do you think that that's a credible argument? I don't think that's crazy at all, because remember, even if the the method by which we got the information was improper, that does not mean the information itself is not factual or or not in the public interest. But this that was the case with Hillary's emails. It was mm. hacked and released. You shouldn't hack people's emails. That's bad. Like you shouldn't. You, you if any anyone who participates in underlying criminal behavior there, I would absolutely think them culpable. I don't know about. You know, he might argue that yes, it was effectively abandoned because Hunter Biden never claimed it. So that might be enough to 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 keep keep at bay the legal ramifications for the laptop store owner. But even if this laptop store owner did something wrong, we we still there is nothing that doesn't mean the information is not in the public's interest once it's there. Okay, so first of all, my dry cleaner, there is a very clear sign that says any item left here longer than 30 days is considered property of the establishment. I'm sure that this laptop owner, yeah. if he didn't have a sign like that, he should have. I don't know if those signs are legally binding, but, you know, at some mm-hmm. point something becomes, you know, like you can do, you know, be, like he's not expected to keep it in his store for the rest of his life. Um, to me, this is, I want to know, great. Okay, Hunter Biden, he invaded your privacy. How exactly? Which of these photos are you saying are real photos that were private? Which of these emails are you saying are real real emails that were private? I mean, this is a not even tacit. This is an explicit admission that this laptop belonged to him. I want every single one of those um, newscasters and mm-hmm. news outlets to now admit that they were totally wrong about that, just like COVID. Of course, they never will, that they called you a Putin stooge for pointing out important mm. things. And I was, uh, the thing that I can't get past is that President Biden, as a candidate, was never once asked to even say that the laptop was not real, not once. He never even mm-hmm. had to say it was not his son's. And I mean, what a dereliction of journalistic. And when theory. asked, he said, well, you know, 50 current and former federal law enforcement national security experts right. have said this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation or have said explicitly that it was Russian disinformation. Actually, so I've gone back to that letter. I've looked. They're very careful in the letter to say, well, we think this resembles Russian disinformation. Mm. But that that caution was totally lost on all the media outlets that actually reported on that yeah, letter. Speaking of weaponizing the security state, no wonder there's so much skepticism around yeah. organizations that might very credibly be trying to bring charges against Donald yeah. Trump. Well, President Biden has denied it in fact, that his family received more than $1 million in payments from accounts related to Hunter Biden's business associate, Rob Walker, and their Chinese business ventures, even though financial records indicate otherwise, according to Fox News. The president said that's not true. The GOP House Oversight Committee revealed that they obtained bank documents showing that Hunter Biden and other family members, including Halle Biden, received payments from Walker and their ventures with Chinese energy firm CEFC in 2017 which, you know, was the underlying point of the laptop story to show that this this corruption was not just influence peddling that through Hunter Biden, but actually did implicate Joe Biden himself. Yeah, these are, you know, significant amounts of money to normal people, uh, tens of thousands of dollars being paid to uh, Joe Biden's deceased son's wife, uh, Haley Biden, who was also then um, dating Hunter Biden for a period of time after Bo's death. 
what it, the purpose of these payments is, mm-hmm. it, it, it's relevant. If it's not relevant legally, it's relevant politically, especially after the Democrats, I think rightly so, were so critical of the close invi- involvement of Donald Trump's children in campaign and presidential responsibilities, literally appointing his son-in-law to negotiate peace in the Middle East. Democrats, I think, were right to be making those kind of nepotism and corruption charges. Mm -hmm. Where do they stand if, again, to your excellent point, Batya, reporters aren't even asking when they have access to do so basic questions about the providence of this money and for what reason it is being paid. If it's not untoward, it seems like it should be something that's relatively easily cleared up in the Failure to do so after all of this time starts to raise more and more questions. I will just point out that Donald Trump's son-in-law did bring peace to the Middle East <laughs> uh, with the Abraham Accords. Um, but um, I, I, I totally agree with you. I just think it was sort of a little bit, you know, of a, of a misdirect then and a little bit of a misdirect now. I can't point to anything that I think President Biden has done vis-a-vis China, all of which I think has been wrong, by the way, that I don't think President Obama would have done. I think he's a classic Democrat when it comes to China. The Democrats are soft on China, most importantly from a domestic economic policy point of view. And to me, this is just they're not going to find a smoking gun tying this mm-hmm. to Joe Biden, even though it's obviously, you know, corruption. It's obvious they wanted access. There's not going to be a smoking gun. I don't hold it against anybody for wanting to pursue this. These are important questions. But to me, the much bigger question is about how are we thinking about China? How are we dealing with China? How are we thinking about American jobs and the American economy vis-a-vis China? Looking at China as an adversary from a just domestic economic point of view, they're not our friends. You know, how did you know, rest that 2 percent of our GDP? back and redistribute it among the working class. Real quick, have either of you ever left a laptop at a laptop repair store <laughs> store before? I'm no. pretty sure I did not reclaim one I sent to Best Buy from like 15 what? years ago. So I'm going to save everybody the trouble. There's a lot of illegally downloaded episodes of Lost on that laptop. <laughs> we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Television personality Bill Maher claims that 2020's $6 trillion COVID relief package is to blame for skyrocketing inflation. Here's what he said. An interest rate spiked, right, because of inflation. Yes. That's why they had to. Okay, so when Uncle Sugar was very generous during COVID. (laughs) Right? That was the result of that. That's what caused the inflation, a lot of what caused the inflation. You cannot put $6 trillion that you don't have in people's pockets and not expect some inflation. That's what caused this rate, and that's so, so it's all connected. So inflation has multifaceted causes. I think runaway government spending is one of them. What do you, what do you say, Brianna? Well, it's interesting how he framed interest rates spiking in the passive tense, as though the Fed didn't make the decision to raise interest rates to curb inflation. So their plan, and the plan that people have been pushing back on from the left and from the working classes, is that there seems to be a real appetite for suppressing wages, driving um, the, the lowering the, the ability for workers to make demands in the workplace in order to bring down demand, as opposed to addressing the issues at the very top. So Bill Maher argues that this is a consequence of uh, abundant COVID-era spending, that people have too much money in their pockets, when, of course, the statistics show that the richest 1% bagged nearly twice as much wealth as the rest of the world put together over the past two years since uh, 2020. Um, We've seen statistics about how uh, the majority, I think about half of all of the COVID spending went to businesses, not to the 
payments that went into people's pockets to pay for rent and groceries and the like. And you never hear this kind of discourse, this kind of rhetoric being used when we're talking about something like the Trump tax plans, which went overwhelmingly to the top 1% of Americans. So why is it that when we're talking about spending, when we're talking about inflationary effects, we're not talking about bringing down inflation in the four sectors that are driving inflation, which include education and healthcare and housing. Uh, and why aren't we talking about the root causes of those things and instead pretending as though individuals who are still struggling, by the way, to afford groceries in a country where there's no limit on price gouging, where we have a ample evidence that that is, in fact, what's going on at these corporations who have been making money hand over fist during this crisis. Uh, why is the onus only on controlling the spending and the ability of the poor to afford their basic and livelihood? why do we never talk about controlling spending related to defense Correct. and all of those things, which, you know, as much money as Ukraine needs is the position Biden has articulated. And we can talk about how that could have an inflationary effect. Or bailouts to massive banks that host uh, the billions of dollars yep. of tech bros. Uh, yep. Meanwhile, comedian John Stewart interviewed former Secretary of the Treasury Larry Summers about the financial woes burdening Americans, particularly the working class. Here is a snippet of the conversation on Friday's episode of his show, The Problem with John Stewart. Let's watch. Every worker should get as high a wage as they can. It would be a terrible idea. But the to Fed try to is going to intervene. The, the Fed is going no. to intervene to make that not possible. No. The Fed is intervening to control the overall level of demand growth. And what because will that do to goes, and what will that do to the labor market? Much faster. What will that do to the labor market? What will it do to the labor market? It Look, will it loosen likely it to lead to, to looser labor markets. Uh, a somewhat uh, looser labor market. Hmm. Now, Bacha, I know you're not a big fan of John Stewart because we reacted to another clip of him, and uh, you were you just you just don't care for him. What did you think of well, this one? Well, all right. So some of the points he made in this interview were extremely important points. I agree with points you basically just made, Brianna. Why is it that the working class who suffers the most from inflation is always asked to bear the burden of taming inflation? Right. So raising interest rates is done with the explicit design of limiting investment, which is explicitly designed to increase unemployment. Right. They want yes. people unemployed. They want, you know, when they talk about uh, rising wages for the working class, they talk about it with dismay. Right. Because they believe that that's where the inflation is coming from. Of course, it's complicated. The supply chain crisis is a huge deal. And one can so easily imagine ways of taming inflation that assist the bottom and target the top, as we've been talking about last week, this week, etc. My problem with Jon Stewart is um, I think that Larry Summers actually owned him in this interview. Um, he did a very good job job of um, making the counter argument, which is that the cause and effect of the corporate profit side of rising inflation is very difficult to evaluate, right? On the one hand, yes, um, corporate profits have gone up. On the other hand, they would naturally go up even if there was no price gouging, if there was less demand, because prices go up, which means profits go up. And then he turned to Stewart and he said, you work for Apple, don't you, right? <laughs> At which, of course, has seen, so, you know, I think Summer said four times more profits than ExxonMobil. 
And, you know, the question Summers was too much of a gentleman to ask was, why don't you ask for fewer millions of dollars? You would never accept well, fewer millions of dollars, I, I think, right? But to, I think to, that John Stewart really owed Matt, despite his paychecks literally being signed by Apple. He said, yes, he thinks that Apple makes too much money. And but he here's, doesn't think that he makes but, too much but money. But here's, here's where John Stewart, I think, really destroyed Larry Summers and all of these corporate millionaires like Larry Summers who constantly rally on MSNBC and, and CNN to, to make workers unemployed while they say we got to socialize profits. What he argued essentially was that labor, when labor has too much power, when there's too much employ, employment, they are causing too much demand and is driving inflation. And when when uh, John Stewart brought up price gouging, Larry Summers says, well, that's just the market at work. When there's demand, who am I to tell uh, an employer, be it Apple or ExxonMobil or whomever, that they shouldn't be able to sell their product for what the market will bear? And John Stewart asked him then, why isn't the same true of workers? If workers have power in a, in, a, in a tight labor market to demand more in the way of wages, why is it that you feel like the government needs to step in and cause massive unemployment in order to bring down inflation? Why is it that the government should only intervene to weaken the bargaining power of the poor and working class and not weakening the bargaining power of corporations yeah. by imposing wage gap? I, uh, I, I, no, I, I get that. I, yeah, it's essentially, he was saying, why would the government won't intervene if it, there's too much unemployment, but it will intervene if there's if 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 inflation is too out of control. And it will intervene yeah. if there is too little unemployment, yeah. which it, is what it's doing. It actually now. goes a little bit to what you said just before we played the uh, that that second clip of the the hypocrisy of people who opposed, for instance, the COVID bailouts. I oppose them. And but then also beg for to, to right. have their deposits insured even yes. beyond what they were actually insured, vis-a-vis -vis Silicon Valley Bank, et cetera, which I is just the most just unbelievable hypocrisy or, or, or people who, you know, who don't want student loan debt forgiveness. Again, I don't want student loan debt forgiveness, but I also don't want any of these bailouts or especially not for this, the tech venture capitalist class who like they have to take on, they, they take on risks. They know the risks. And if they pay off good, they get, they get to profit from that. But you don't, if you lose, you lose. That's not the taxpayers. That's the game. Right. And to your point, it never happens that when they win, they say, well, because we made public the risk, we're going to give the public right. some of these winnings, right. right? No, they keep it all for themselves. I think what bothered me about the clip was, um, you know, that he, he, he sort of moved the goalpost, you know, on the one hand, denying that the payments to workers um, in, in contributed to inflation. Of course they did. More money always does. We could say we're okay with that. We could say that that was worth it, right? I think we would probably agree that it was worth it to a certain extent, maybe the first one, maybe not the second one, whatever. We could talk about that. But, you know, to deny that that contributed to inflation, I think, mm -hmm. is ridiculous. Um, and then to move the goalposts to this very valid question about why the government only intervenes to protect the rich and to punish the poor, which I think is a great point and, and one we've talked about at length. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, it's worth noting um, the uh, when I when you look at Trump's four point eight trillion dollar tax cut tax cut proposals, um, Bill Maher characterized it as six six trillion dollars going into people's pockets. That didn't happen. What we saw was uh, 1.8 trillion went to individuals and families. 1.7 trillion went to businesses. There's been ample discussion of the PPP funds and the difference between the discourse around what happened with that money and what could happen with potential student debt cancellation. But already off the bat, I think there's some bad faith framing from Bill Maher. And when you go back and look at what happened to the Trump tax cut money, 61.4% um, uh, went to the richest 1%. 
64.1% went to the richest and 1%. We're not having any conversation about that $4.8 trillion of tax proposals effect on the economy in terms of inflation and spending. It's only a conversation when it's when there's a public policy that benefits the poor. And it's really heartening, at least from my perspective, to see some real pushback happening in mainstream circles. Yeah, Larry Summers coming in for a lot of criticism lately, I've noticed, from people in your circles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been mad at him since he told me that I'll, when I was a college student and he was my college president, that women just weren't that good at science. So <laughs> as a science major, it got in my cry, I gotta say. <laughs> All right, more rising right after this. Stay with us. Chinese leader Xi Jinping touched down in Moscow Monday for a three-day meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And what both nations say is a chance to further their, quote, no-limits friendship. The rendezvous comes just days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin for allegedly committing crimes against Ukrainian children, specifically the unlawful deportation and transfer from Ukraine to the Russian Federation. Journalist Caitlin Johnstone was just one Twitter user to question whether it's fair to prosecute Putin, quote, it's not a whataboutism to say it's absurd to charge Putin with war crimes without charging Bush. It's a completely devastating argument against the claim being made. If the law doesn't apply to everyone, then it's not the law, it's just corruption. It's a tool of the powerful. Journalist Glenn Greenwald joined in, adding, quote, whataboutism is the word they fed to the world's dumbest people to bar inquiry into whether they and their side abide by the standards they impose on others. I'm enraged. Trump embraced Saudi tyrants. Unprecedented. Obama, Biden, and Clinton did the same. What about ism? So, yeah, um, I was thinking a lot about this because the, I mean, there are a lot of things you could potentially charge Vladimir Putin with, right? A lot of war crimes, a lot of crimes he's committed. He's, you know, notorious for poisoning his opposition and, and jailing them and so forth. But this specific charge of, of moving children um, from Ukraine to Russia seems to me a little bit Odd. I think specifically, um, what, from what I can tell, a lot of the children are from Donetsk, which at the start of this conflict was not officially part of Ukraine, right? Even under the Minsk Accords, it was a contested area that was an independent republic. So I don't even know that it's correct to say they were moved from Ukraine to Russia, if they were moved from Donetsk to Russia. And then there was another story about children who were in Mariupol who were found sort of in a bunker under a destroyed building. I mean, you know, was he just supposed to leave them there? I, I'm not. I'm not necessarily defending this, but it's just of all of the, the crimes mm -hmm. one could leverage against Putin, this seems to me a very bizarre one to hang such a, a large, a large um, um, investigation on. Yeah, uh, Putin is a thug who is operating outside the bounds of the law because he launched this invasion of Ukraine. But they have, I think you're making a totally correct point that they pegged it to something very specific. This is a little bit harder to prove than, than you might think. Um, and, and, and in fact, the International Criminal Court, which, by the way, the U.S. has all sorts of problems with. We are not, right. we are not part of this. We are not involved in this. The, the Obama administration had pledged to cooperate with it. Uh, the Biden administration, and then Trump has criticized it, you know, ten, six ways to Sunday. Biden uh, and Antony Blinken have maintained that we have these longstanding issues with it. Um, and I, so people have criticized this thing on all sides of the political spectrum. There's a, there's a kind of, I think, left criticism of it as well, that it's really only previously been focused on injustices um, in Africa, African warlords, dictators, after the fact, not when yeah. it could still do something when they're in office, and has overlooked um, uh, uh, crimes committed in the Western sphere. Yeah, look, there might be a relationship between what they've chosen to charge Putin with and the fact that a lot of powerful Western nations don't want to be 
implicated in any charges from the ICC, even though that they have also engaged in war crimes. So one reporter at Al Jazeera wrote that he is glad that the ICC has charged Putin with a war crime. It, he has earned it, but it's also deeply hypocritical. He wrote, quote, there are other leaders of other nations, including the United States and Israel, who regard themselves as exempt from the ICC's authority and who have also earned being charged with war crimes by the court. Uh, apparently, according to the ICC, a cocksure British prime minister and his soldiers who joined their evangelical American cousins to evade Iraq and Afghanistan, destroying countless towns and cities, don't count, I'm abbreviating that, so-called elite Australian soldiers who murdered scores of Afghan civilians, don't count. Um, a slew of Israeli prime minister's soldiers and their proxies who have targeted Palestinian kids, women, and children don't count. So he lists all of these other things, which have been credibly described as war crimes by other governments. But the difference seems to be who is doing it when, you, when it comes to the accountability of these kind of international organizations. Well, I yeah. think it's funny to say they've evaded the authority of the ICC. The, the ICC has no authority, right? It's an right. international body that is purely symbolic in nature, right? I mean, again, you cannot have a legal system without a nation state. Um, so it's funny to talk about evading, you know, evading yeah. authority, like when it doesn't actually have any. But, um, you know, I, I think this is, it's, it's, it's very curious. I mean, I understand that, you know, we are all Ukraine now and so forth. And, you know, Putin is supposed to be treated and, you know, spoken about in a certain way. And I, I, we can all acknowledge that he has done horrible, awful things. But this one particular one, you know, mm -hmm. I, just, I find it very curious that they've chosen to, to hang their hats on this. And yeah. again, there are, there are conservative and libertarian criticisms as well of the IC including that it does not actually have certain due process protections, that there's no right to a jury trial. So one of the arguments against U.S. support or involvement with this body is that it would actually obligate us to violate our own right. U.S. Bill of Rights because we have more guarantees than this body has. I mean, this is the problem with international law. Yeah. Yeah. The United States routinely chooses not to engage when it would implicate our domestic policy, sometimes in good ways. So we won't sign on to the Universal Declaration for the Rights of the child because we won't guarantee certain things like housing and health care to people in our country that other people will. Um, and I, this is also giving me uh, vibes about the Nord Stream pipeline situation, mm. where what what do we have in terms of international organizations who can conduct an independent uh, investigation that isn't being conducted by the people who are implicated in the blast when you have the, you know, Russia made a request for the UN to conduct an independent investigation. The United States and its allies shut, shut that down. And so the question becomes, well, then who? And ultimately, this idea of international law in many ways, when it's unenforceable, does become a fiction, which again, begs the question of how, why it is that America is able to continue to grandstand mm -hmm. on Putin violating international law. I think nobody is disputing that the invasion of Ukraine was improper, but then what do you do with other kinds of impropriety on the behalf of Americans like or other countries like potentially bombing uh, our allies' infrastructure in Nord Stream? Right. International and specifically European law is very different on free speech also, yeah. for instance. That's one reason to be a little wary of getting overly involved in international organizations. They take a totally different view of uh, the trade-off between free speech and, and uh, privacy. There's no, no First Amendment in Europe. They can jail you for hate speech, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so forth. We don't do that. We think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. A lot of people in the U.S. think that's a good thing. So but not uh, everybody anymore. Here. Not everybody anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I think, as you both said, condem let's condemn Putin. Let's be very unhappy about what he's doing. 
but uh, but the specifics of this one are a little weird. Oh, it's worth noting before we before we leave this, what the the major implication of this is going to be for Putin is that he can't travel. Is that there's this risk that if he goes to travels that would extradite him for these crimes that he you know could be mm -hmm. arrested. So you know what does this mean also in terms of the. Uh, desire for diplomacy yeah. and his ability to meet with people and actually come to some resolution in Ukraine if there are any number of countries that he literally cannot go to without risk of actually being I wonder arrested. what his vaccine status is if he's trying to come to the U.S. <laughs> if, if he wants to play tennis, we'd have to, we'd have to double check that right. now, wouldn't we? More rising right after this. Please stay tuned. Podcaster Joe Rogan is speaking out on what he says is a cultural shift among the left and the right. Let's watch. The culture shift between right and left authoritarianism, and now people don't recognize that the, if you just stopped looking at it in terms of red and blue, look at the actions, whether it's war, suppression of free speech, uh, pharmacological interventions that are mandatory, right. whatever, whatever, whatever the f*** it is, that used to all be associated with the authoritative right, the authoritarian right. And now those things are being embraced by the left. And I just think it's, a, I think it's just an ideology thing. And I think we get confused and we think, we're on the right side. We're on the right side. And if it's our side that's saying this, for sure that's the right thing to do. And no one's critically thinking about this. Yeah, I think it's interesting that someone like Joe Rogan is thinking that way. Obviously, with his massive audience, probably there's going to be some disagreement on whether, you know, which side is the actually authoritarian side. But on, you know, the things, I think what has moved Rogan in that direction of thinking of the left rather than the right as the authoritarian side is the things he mentioned. And in particular, I think there's a lot of legitimacy to it on the COVID front and the uh, and the war front. Uh, the, I, COVID, I think, speaks for itself, from my perspective at least. But it, it is true that to the extent you can find any opposition to the war in Ukraine, you can really only find it in corners of of, uh, of the right, or vis-a-vis -vis the Republican Party, which actually did make a stink about the funding for Kevin McCarthy's confirmation. Um, so we are seeing a realignment and a shakeup happen. Now, I, I think, you know, in fairness, probably you, Brianna, would say there's tons of authoritarianism you could identify in on the right or in Republican circles, but um, there is a shift happening. Yeah, look, I got to say, I think it's really suspicious when you see authoritarianism happening all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know we live in a corporate duopoly. You know we have two corporate parties with similar incentives to suppress people's ability to speak, They're the, increase the level of surveillance, increase the power of the intelligence state and say, oh, but only one side is doing it, or you should be really worried about one side versus the other. I, I completely agree with a lot, so many of the criticisms about mm -hmm. how COVID was mis mishandled, and I am stand firmly with the anti-war left about the critiques of how um, uh, America has engaged in the Ukraine war, uh, Ukraine-Russia war. And I completely also agree that there are more anti-war voices elected in Congress than they're on the right than there are on the left because the number on the left is like zero. <laughs> There's no real elected left mm -hmm. in the United States of America. All of that is true. At the same time, you have. Republican governors banning entire disciplines of study in the state of Florida. You have them promulgating laws, hundreds of laws across the country, aiming to do things like prevent people from dressing the way they want in drag. You can't wear, you know, am I going to be allowed to wear pants in certain parts of America? You have some Republican Congress members talking about a federal abortion ban. You have a publisher, this was a story earlier this week, a publisher removed references to Rosa Parks' race in a draft of a Florida textbook. <laughs> so they say now that uh, she had to move 
Someone asked her to move and she stood her ground and that's why she's a hero. Why pray tell, tell that they ask her to move, right? So this, this is what's going on in the country. And I, I, I'm concerned that people are being softened to any authoritarianism anywhere because this kind of team sport aspect is being injected into it. And people think, well, as long as my side is doing it less, I'm not going to have a critique of my own side. Hmm. What do you think, Bacha? I mean... <laughs> Whenever Brianna talks, I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's bad, and that's bad, and that's bad. I mean, I, th I think naturally I feel that um, Joe Rogan is right. I mean, I remember when the right was affiliated with, you know, things like blasphemy, right? You can't say this, you can't say that. And now they're the ones sort of speaking up for free speech, at least on some issues. Um, you know, the, the, the banning tends to be around the issue of children. And so I think that that's a sort of sensitive topic um, um, and different than saying, you know, we're banning things outright, whereas on the left there. Is, does is this the same publisher that's uh, you know that is sanitizing Roald Dahl and Ian Fleming Maybe, and all that? Look, I, I don't think so. But <laughs> sick of all this. This is, this is a historical. This is one of these school textbooks. No, what that it have sounds like to me is somebody yeah. misread the Stop Woke Act, which actually explicitly mandates teaching children about slavery and discrimination. And they were like, oh God, you know, there's look, there's idiots at every level of you yeah. know government and every level of every right. Like somebody you know overzealously trying to implement something in a or not overzealous. There are criminal penalties for violating this act. And people, rightly so, are trying to avoid even have, either having to pay a fine or potentially jail time for violating this act. There was another video that went viral earlier this week of a, of a Zoom call between a teacher and a principal where the teacher in good faith was trying to say, look, I, I'm about to teach slavery and I don't know. Tell me, boss, am I allowed to say that slavery was bad? Can I say slavery was bad? And the teacher and the principal was like, I honestly don't know. And so if you honestly don't know, if laws are being promulgated that make you feel like you could violate the law if you say a certain thing in the classroom and you self-censor as a consequence, how is that not the arm of the state pushing censorship on people in a way that we should be at least as concerned about as some woke Oberlin student shouting down a professor in a classroom? Well, yeah, as I've said, things, I think it's pretty, think, they're pretty silly and I don't really support those But I think there laws. are things that both of you would support it being illegal to say to children, right? I mean, it's, it's not like we have no laws about that. We actually do have laws already in place, like but, about like things you can't say to when, kids. When it's someone comes up with what? something in a, in a classroom that is genuinely inappropriate, I would love to have a conversation about it. But this is the, similar to the conversation about wokeness that we were having. Just be specific. If there's a specific instance, call it out. Let's talk about it. But at a certain point, it seems suspicious to not want to talk about the specific issues and hide behind this idea that there's something out there attacking children. At the end of the day, if you can't name it, and if the consequences are we're not allowed to say that uh, Rosa Parks sat on the bus in a white section of a bus because in well, the country that we live in, there was a white that. section of the bus. I think to Baja's point, no one had no but, one, literally no one. Robbie, Robbie, that's like that. saying that the people just suggested that Twitter. very clear but, about what but, you can't but, 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 say. Robbie. What you can't say are things that make one race responsible today. But to, Bacha, that, uh, but, to Brianna's point, <laughs> I, I, I get to be the middle ground person for once. Great. I, I agree with you, Bacha, that yeah, that they're not. That is not what they're being called to do. And if if if, if that's ambiguous. the standard they should be doing. But I, I agree with you, Brianna, that the fact that some <laughs> that 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 it, it will for for fear of taking on liability right. cause some exactly people not to teach files. things. This is exactly the Twitter files. This is exactly the Twitter files. That's like saying, well, the FBI didn't come come into Twitter guns a blazing and force them to censor information. Right. They just 
pressured them no, and pressured them and, and leaked stories and told the press, oh, you see what happened in Facebook? Facebook's responsible for 2016. You don't want Twitter to get that heat, do you? That is exactly the kind of soft so censorship that we're concerned about. So my solution is this school should teach whatever it wants, and this school should teach whatever it wants, and this school should teach whatever it wants. Right, if you and your family don't like it, solution. you can go to a different There's school. There's a lot well, of kids who are stuck in this the public these are schools. Well, like I, and I would, make it, and I, would, I would allocate the funding for <laughs> right, them to, right. so they you could take it and go to any school. I don't think they should be mandated to go to the school in which they live. You have to do that first. <laughs> Instead of fighting these these politically divisive battles over what exactly every person has to learn in every single school is going to have well, us at our throats forever, and we should just allow more choice and more options. And that way, you, if you object to this book, you don't have I, to have your kids. I'm not going to do school choice uh, stuff with you today, Robbie. But I think it's worth noting, like how again, I think that it's worth calling out censorship. It's worth calling out um, authoritarianism wherever it rears its head as forcefully as you can. But this is the kind of I would argue whitewashing of right authoritarianism you're getting from right-leaning figures. This is um, uh, Andrew Sullivan, a section that went viral earlier this week from a recent Substack post of his. This is how he describes the, the right versus left wokeness. He writes, DeSantis may be overreaching on the anti-woke stuff, and he comes off as gruff and stiff with a bully's feet. But in the broader context of a top-down cultural revolution from the woke left, his attempts at pushback are hardly the stuff of fascism. They're almost poignant in their plain unconstitutionality. So many people point out, he describes DeSantis's unconstitutional laws as poignant. That's hilarious. Meanwhile, and not top-down, Right, the top-down stuff. He's like, "Don't be concerned about that. That's that's cute. It's it's poignant." But the cultural stuff that's happening at colleges with blue-haired liberals and stuff, as annoying as you might think it be, might might be, he's framing that as the real problem in America. And I'm just afraid we're going to wake up one day and have our real rights and laws stripped because we were complaining too much about what happened at Berkeley. You don't accept that there is a huge difference between what happens between consenting adults and then what happens in a controlled environment for children that the, that the government already controls. Tell, what happens? Tell me the thing that you think the government should address and we can have a conversation about it, but I'm not going to uh, engage in abstract what about the childrenism when we're talking about what we really are happening with the children, that children are being denied the opportunity to learn about someone I was taught was the civil rights here growing up, Rosa Parks, because there's an active censorship happening in the state of Florida. I am getting flashbacks. I have not felt myself in the middle position <laughs> on this show since hearkening all the way back to the Ryan Grimm and Kim Iverson days, <laughs> which I had to moderate their battles. This is amazing. Thank you for this uh, for well, this. Stroll down memory lane. It's been wonderful having you here today in studio with us, Bacha. Tomorrow on Rising, Bree and I will be back with another stellar show for you. Status Quo News will join us for an update on East Palestine. Bacha, it was so great having you. Thank you so much for making the trek. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, go ahead, Bree. Yeah, we'll be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You know you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, so don't miss any of this content. You can also find us on Roku and other streaming devices. So check us out. And tell us uh, in the comments what you think of our new setup, our cool purple lighting. <laughs> We're pretty happy about it. We like the music, too. This is a jam. Yeah, it's nice. It's feeling really good, really crisp. See you tomorrow, guys.